criminal justice reform movement was possible because crime had been driven to historic lows, in my view, in large part, by the policy successes of the late 80s and early 90s. It driven to historic lows, and then Americans go, okay, we can tolerate being slightly nicer to criminals. But once violent crime goes back up, people are like, hang on a minute, I'm not necessarily into this. So I think I think that certainly on the on the explicit level, as politics will become less popular and already becoming less popular, um, you see this in you see this in mayoral races, you see this in congressional Democrats, like had, uh, urgent need to disconnect themselves and defund the police that they do all the time. Join the best in the movement. It's conservative conversations with ISI, educating for liberty since 1953. Welcome back. You are listening to Conservative Conversations with Johnny, Marlo, and Nate. Today on the podcast, we are joined by Charles Fane Lehman, who is a fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor at City Journal. At the Manhattan Institute, he works primarily on the Policing and Public Safety Initiative, so we're looking forward to talking to him about the increase in violent crimes in many American cities. Thanks for joining us, Charles. Absolutely. I'm very happy to be here. Before we get started with our interview, I'd like to thank you for listening to Conservative Conversations. This podcast is a production of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Our mission at ISI is to educate for liberty. If you'd like to help us in pursuing that mission, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts to help us reach more listeners like yourself. Charles, as Nate mentioned, we'd love to kind of probe the issue of the violent crime rise that we've seen in a lot of cities across the country, uh, one of which not far from ISI itself is the city of Philadelphia, where there's been quite a spike in homicides. Uh, I think I saw one that said uh, one report that said it's reaching numbers not seen in at least six decades. So what can you tell us about the state of the country in terms of crime and public safety, especially, you know, in the last two years since, uh, you know, the, the, the rise of the defund the police movement? And um, it does seem like the news cycle, as I'm sure many of our listeners can relate, is uh, filled with these examples of looting, theft, shootings, and you know, myriad other violent crimes. And perhaps that's something that many many people who live in cities are encountering more than others. Um, but I have seen also that rural rural towns as well have seen you know an increase in violent crimes. So um, what what do you think is driving what we're seeing this this violent crime wave? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I'll, I'll sort of offer the disclaimer to begin with that. Uh, my my answers here are drawn from a variety of data sources, some of which are better at updating than others. So, you know, we're going to know things about 2021 that we'll, we don't necessarily know about 2022. We're going to know things about 2020 that we don't necessarily know about 2021. General crime is sort of tricky to measure and we don't do a great job at it. So there's a big asterisk next to everybody's claims about crime. That said, we're pretty sure that Relative to 2019, homicides rose between 25 and 30 percent over 2020-2021. Um, the best guess that we have, based on uh, limited city data, is they're going to continue at that level. Um, and for context, that's like the biggest single year. 2019 to 2020 is the biggest single year increase in homicide rates on record. Um, that's like a really huge deal. Uh, it is below some of the really high peaks in the 1980s and early 1990s, but it's still dramatically elevated over what Americans have come to expect. We also saw concurrently increases in, in increases in shootings or aggravated assaults which are a measure of shootings. Um, and as I like to say, shooting a shooting is just a homicide where the would-be killer missed. Um, they're really essentially the same crime. Uh, and dramatic increases in motor vehicle theft. I'll talk about why in a second. Um, 
in 2020, we saw property crimes drop pretty precipitously. Uh, I think ultimately for like fairly boring reasons, like there were just fewer opportunities to commit property crimes because people were at home um, and not out and about to be mugged or to have their stuff stolen while they were away from home. There is some evidence that that's sort of mean, that's returning to normal. It may in individual cities have gone above what it looked like in 2019, 2018. We don't totally know yet. But I do think the big story is about violent crime. And, you know, I think there are a lot of conflicting explanations for this. There are people who want to say, well, the pandemic caused people to sort of freak out. Um, I find this explanation pretty unpersuasive, largely because uh, we are really the only developed country, as far as we can tell, that saw a dramatic murder increase in 2020. Um, another story, one of which I've been a proponent, is that uh, the the pullback of policing in the wake of the defund the police movement, the reduction in police productivity, mass resignations, all contributed to a reduction in the criminal justice system's capacity to respond to crime. Um, I think one thing that is... Uh, I've, I've come to sort of nuance that view since the summer of 2020, early 2021. Um, one thing that I think is telling is that most of this crime increase is concentrated among uh, crimes where offense is already pretty concentrated. What I mean by that is that in city after city after city, you see this phenomenon where most shootings, most homicides are committed under small among small social networks of people. They're tied up in gang life. They get in feuds. These are the people who are responsible for it. So like in D.C., 500 people account for 80% of shootings. Um, And I think that you see those sort of uh, high concentration crimes having increased over the past couple of years. Uh, This, by the way, you know, is the the story about car theft that I like is that people are stealing. I've I've heard this in several contexts. People are stealing cars so that they can use them to do drive-bys. That's another part of the homicide spike. Um, So I think a lot of what we're seeing is increase in this sort of concentrated gang-related or, you know, informal social network-related violence uh, that is almost certainly a product of declining police capacity, but it's probably also the fact that we're still at only 80% of pre-COVID-19 jail capacity. Our courts are still clogged up. They're still not processing cases swiftly. Um, there's still uncertainty about school access. There's still fewer people in the workforce, and schools and jobs are also a way to pe- keep people under social control. So, you know, I think I think the big the, the headline points are big increase in violence, ambiguous increase in property crimes. Why is violence increasing? And I think a lot of it has to do with basically the ratcheting back of those social controls on violent offenders, which plays out in a variety of areas, both among the police and in the criminal justice system, but also more broadly across society. Charles, uh, you have written a brief about the, the connection between uh, alcohol consumption and crime and had proposed some alcohol-related policy. And I'm, I'm curious, w- without sort of to prohibition, what is your uh, vision for, what, first, what the connection alcohol consumption, and two, what we can do about it? Yeah, um, so that's a, that's a brief I wrote with my Manhattan colleague, Connor Harris. And, you know, I, I, a, a sort of couple of top-line points. One is that there's really, really good evidence that alcohol consumption contributes to crime. There's sort of like circumstantial evidence that's like, a significant percentage of people who are in prison were drunk at the time of their offense, but there's also um, higher quality of what we would call causal evidence. So, for example, you can look at people just below the age of alcohol consumption and just above the age of alcohol consumption, and there's a there's a discontinuity, there's a jump in their potential in their propensity to be arrested or to commit crimes. Um, you can look at uh, spatial distribution of access to alcohol and see that that has an impact. Um, you can look at the effect of alcohol taxes. So there's like a lot of really good evidence that says all it's equal, alcohol causes crime to go up, access to alcohol causes crime to go up. 
Um, that's like pretty intuitive. Uh, alcohol disinhibits us. If you're the sort of person who's likely to commit a crime, disinhibition is probably bad. What my colleague Connor and I argue, point two, is that problem drinking is a highly concentrated phenomenon. Um, a small percentage of the population, maybe as little as 10%, consumes a large share of alcohol, maybe as much as 80% of alcohol drunk. Half of all Americans don't drink at all, um, just for, you know, for, for context. Uh, so those who drink heavily are a small minority. Um, and so our argument is like you can build policies that allow you to focus on the people and places where alcohol is most problematic. Uh, so we say, for example, uh, in our brief, we talk about local referenda that allow individual neighborhoods or precincts to close bars that they consider controversial. And this, by the way, this exists here in D.C. This exists in Chicago. Other jurisdictions can implement this. When we talk about programs that focus on alcohol-related offenders, there's a program started in South Dakota. It's a number of states in a number of states now called 24/7 Sobriety, where as part of the terms of your probation, you have to go in and blow a breathalyzer twice a day. And if you uh, test positive, then you go to jail for five days. It's remarkably effective at reducing not only alcohol-related offending, but also domestic violence and other sort of associated offenses. We also suggest that uh, there's room to increase the uh, federal excise tax on liquor, which has trailed dramatically behind inflation. We think you can do this and then sort of redistribute the gains to everybody else so that the tax falls disproportionately, again, on the heaviest drinkers and everyone else gets a tax break. Um, so the, basically, you know, the, the goal is like the people who are most likely to offend, the people who are most likely to behave badly when they drink are a small percentage of the population. They exist in a small number of places. Target those people in places and you can have a dramatic effect on crime without, you know, cutting everybody else off the blunt force of prohibition. Charles, it feels like what you're describing in terms of those policy prescriptions are part and parcel of the animating philosophy that I think was, you know, exceptionally successful at reducing crime after the crime spike of the 70s and 80s, which was the sort of broken windows philosophy that understood that policing the basics of public disorder, even if they were small misdemeanors, was actually a crucial prerequisite to solving the really violent crimes, right? You couldn't just go after the violent crimes. You had to go at the environment of public disorder that sort of led at, was the sort of breeding ground for these more violent offenses. The worrying thing to me as someone who takes that sort of public philosophy pretty seriously is that it seems like it's sort of become discredited, both obviously on the left, but also on a segment of the libertarian right, which is very partial to policing and criminal justice reform in recent years. Is there, I mean, what is the state of that, what I think is very successful sort of criminal justice philosophy today and is there, do you think, an appetite or an opportunity for bringing it back in the face of all the public disorder? Yeah. So so very narrowly, we know that, that Eric Adams, for example, the, the mayor of New York, said he wants to bring back stop and frisk. There's, there's a sign that uh, uh, London Breed in San Francisco says we got to clean up the tenderloin. We got to send cops in to bust up uh, homeless encampments. That could theoretically be called broken windows policing. Um, so I do think that you know, people are very aware of public disorder. They want something done about it. And they are in our in the Manhattan Institute's polling and in other I think there's other, other evidence of this. They are sympathetic to law enforcement being part of the solution. But you know the the broader point is like what I like to say is that a everybody actually leaves in broken windows and b nobody agrees on what broken windows is. 
If you go back and read Kelling and Wilson, the um, uh, 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 George Kelling and James Q. Wilson, the, who wrote the original Working Windows article in the Atlantic in the 1970s, their argument is basically the police enforcing community norms helps facilitate community self-governance to reduce crime, which is like kind of persuasive, I think is, is true in some senses, but it's not necessarily sort of just positive account of how crime control works. Um, and by the way, it's really hard to falsify. Uh, like nobody can agree on a good empirical measure of this. Um, but there's, I mean, there's been lots of work since then. So like we now have really high quality experiments where we randomly clean up vacant lots in Philadelphia and the vacant lots that get cleaned up, gun violence around them goes down 40%, something like that. Is that broken windows? Stop and frisk. All, all the people you're talking about are like, broken windows means stop and frisk. And my response is, which stop and frisk? Do we mean Giuliani stop and frisk? Do we mean Bloomberg stop and frisk? How extensive? What is the, um, you know, I can go on like this all day. Uh, I think that the, I, I, I think that it is almost certainly right. A, that uh, there's a relationship, there's an established relationship between disorder and crime, um, that all else equal disorders, at least some forms of disorder, uh, contribute to crime be that most people agree that the cops have a role in, in disorder enforcement, both because of that connection, but also because of, uh, also because of, um, uh, just sort of a general interest in minimizing disorders. You know, th- this is my argument about, uh, the recall of the San Francisco, uh, district attorney, Chester Boudin. It's like violent crime in San Francisco is actually not up that much. People just really hated how disorderly it was. And they hated that Boudin was basically hostile to the idea of, uh, of disorder enforcement. I don't think that we necessarily have a comprehensive account of why there is a relationship, why, why policing disorder drives down crime, um, whether it is about, you know, community self-governance. I read a paper recently that argues it's about enabling certain actors, rulemaking actors in the community. I tend to think it's about the ability of both the community and formal mechanisms to uh, formal institutions to sort of sanction the small populations who commit violent crime that I alluded to previously. I think there's a lot that we don't know, but A, I think you can defend disorder enforcement on its own merits. And B, I think that everyone sort of agrees that the stuff that we did in the 90s, empowering communities, having the cops work with them, focusing on what they demand, like is efficacious even, uh, even if people don't talk about it in the same language. So outside of the sort of academic debates, which are obviously important about the sort of the, the scope of broken windows and what specifically it means, in terms of the political appetite for a more aggressive response to both violent crime and disorder, it sort of seems like I've watched two different parallel narratives materialize over the course of the last few months, where on the one hand, you have the recall of, of Chase Boudin, who you, who you mentioned, and I've heard talk on the right of a sort of new neoconservative moment. And this is the original neoconservatism, not the foreign policy neoconservatism, but the one that, you know, Irving Kristol's emphasis on, on policing public disorder. But at the same time, the response I've seen from some folks on the left is pointing out that Larry Krasner, who's the DA in, in Philadelphia, who was very left-wing, maybe not quite as left-wing as Chase Boudin, who is literally descended from left-wing terrorists, but was very much ran on a, on a similar sort of decarceration and hostile to enforcement platform, cruised to re-election, right? So it, it's, it's sort of difficult to tell where the ethos is and how much of an appetite there actually is versus whether or not the kind of progressive policing revolution that was spawned by summer 2020 is very much still in effect. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think (laughs) the American people have constantly contradictory impulses on a variety of topics, and this is no exception. We, We did a poll of big city 
uh, residents of big cities. And we found that 73% of respondents, I think it's like 20 cities, 73% of respondents supported empowering police officers to quote, be more responsive to quote, graffiti, public urination, and littering. So 1% said cops should be able to clear homeless encampments, assuming residents are given access to social services and shelter. Um, so like people say yes to that, but they will also say, yes, I support progressive reform. Um, I am in favor of, you know, doing things better. Everyone's always in favor of reform. Doing things better is better than doing things worse. You know, I think I think that a lot comes down to heterogeneities at the, you know, d- differences at the local level. Um, my argument at Boudin is really that, like, right, I mean, San Francisco is weird. As I said, violent crime did not go up. Uh, but the city is well established as kind of a trash heap. Um, they have no interest in public order enforcement. And Boudin has been particularly vocal about his opposition to public order enforcement. And so it is no surprise to me that people sort of saw him as the symbol. Whereas a guy like Krasner, you know, he's, he's A, I like to point out that Krasner won re-election with 18% of the city voting. Like he got, I think, 12%. His opponent got, in the primary, got 6%. Um, it's, a, it's a weird off-cycle election. Like nobody turns out. I think if you got many more people in Philadelphia voting, the outcome might be different. But look, I think, you know, I think the harms of Krasner look very different. Um, uh, you know, his, it's, it's pretty demonstrably the case that Larry Krasner is like not prosecuting a variety of gun related offenses. And that's keeping people with legal guns on the street longer and almost certainly contributing to Philadelphia's homicide spike. But is that affecting the average Philadelphian in the same way that trash on the street is? No, probably not. So it's a little easier for them to cling to their premises. Um, you know, I there there are there are there are differences all over the place. Uh, the Seattle city attorney um, is is a Republican for the first time in decades. Uh, nobody expected. You know, th- this is the home of the chop slash Chaz, and her opponent was just so crazy that Seattle that Seattle residents were like, no, we're voting for the Republican, uh, and she has limited power. She can only prosecute misdemeanors. Uh, that's the weird thing about a city attorney. But you know, look, a a a lot depends, I think, on the particular candidate. Do I think, but I, I think synthetically, look, Americans are fed up with disorder. Americans want to live in cities that are clean. Americans want to live in cities that are safe. Uh, they are willing to embrace reform. They like the idea of reform abstractly, but only when it doesn't run up against those other values. So transitioning a little bit to the sort of the, I guess, back almost to the the academic debates. It's it's interesting when in when you're sort of looking at the dynamics in all of these cities, and particularly on the progressive side, to hear people like Udine specifically echo the language of what were once a pretty niche set of academic theories, ones that I encountered in the classroom, but never really expected to see actually trickle out into something that was electorally viable. I mean, we had an interchange on Twitter actually like a week or so ago about like the differences between young conservatives and older conservatives based on their experiences on campus. And one reason that I think a lot of young conservatives are particularly rattled about the state of the country is that they are seeing these academic theories they encounter in the classroom that a lot of their older counterparts might have waved away as sort of boutique academic silliness actually become law. And I think nowhere is that more potent than in the debates over policing and criminal justice. You saw a lot of calls for, you know, defund the police in the pages of the New York Times, et cetera, during 2020. But it seems like that is actually caught on in a lot of those cities. Two, I guess it's sort of a two-part question. But first, do you think Americans really comprehend the scope of what these theories actually mean in their practical application? And B, do you think they actually have staying power in these progressive hotbeds where a lot of people might actually be sympathetic to them having gone to a lot of elite universities, you know, et cetera? Yeah. So, you know, I think 
I mean, so the first thing that I would say is that radicalism in all public policy areas and including in criminal justice comes and goes um, before massive, you know, uh, when, when, when you go read these books like the new Jim Crow, they sort of act like mass incarceration came out of nowhere. Policing the 80s came out of nowhere. They sort of forget that like before that happened, there were several decades of fairly radical policy made in the other direction, um, buoyed by many of the same ideas, which are, you know, now being recycled by progressive activists. Like many, many of these talking points are not new. I, so, you know, I think it is generally the case that these things come and go. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think Americans, I mean, frankly, I think Americans have been systematically deceived by the criminal justice reform left. Um, criminal justice reform is, you know, a twenty-plus year project. Project uh, since the since the sort of crime decline began in the early nineteen nineties, really being in the early two thousands, and then sort of ramping up during the Obama administration. Um, the new Jim Crow's publication in the early twenty tens is sort of a, a milestone here. Uh, of this like galvanizing moment when we're all come together to say criminal justice reform is good, and and like. It was always sold on the basis of like profound falsehoods, right? You go read, you go watch Avery Renee's 13, which is like this extremely uh, expensively produced Netflix documentary about uh, mass incarceration. It's like, it's all about the private prison industrial complex. And you ignore the fact that fewer than 10% of American offenders are locked up in private prisons. They just like, you know, that that's false. Uh, something like 14% of Americans are incarcerated for drugs. Less than 1% are incarcerated for marijuana possession. That's false. Uh, something like fewer than 30 unarmed black men are killed a year by the cops. Um, and half of those guys are charging the cops anyway. Um, I mean, there's like a series of profound... <laughs> Uh, like profound, this, this is like profound dishonesty at the core of the movement that says here are these unobjectionable things that everyone should oppose. Um, you know, my, my, my favorite example of this is, uh, you know, uh, the fixation on mandatory minima. There's no evidence that mandatory minimums have a significant impact on overall prison populations. The average sentence has not really changed dramatically. Um, as a law professor Fordham, whose name is John Pfaff, who's a pretty radical progressive, but who demonstrates this in his book, the average sentence hasn't gotten gotten much longer. Um, but, you know, we fix it on mandatory minimums all the time. So, I mean, yeah, A, I think that, look, the American people sort of don't get how radical this stuff gets. They allowed, and frankly, many people on the right cooperated with for a period of years and years, fairly radical elements to sort of present the most respectable face of their politics for a long time. Um, and then what began to happen around the Ferguson protests and what really started happening in June of 2020 is that they said, okay, here's our moment. We're going to go for it. Um, and they did. Uh, and people started to go, hang on. You mean we've been working with people who want to abolish the police and abolish prisons? Are you serious? <laughs> They're already in positions of power. Uh, so, you know, do I think that's, do I think it's like, has staying power? The historical evidence is that Americans are highly responsive to changes in the crime rate. Um, like we, you know, you my, my favorite example of this is that support for the death penalty more or less perfectly tracks uh, the violent crime rate for in, in polling. Um, like when crime is sailing, you know, the criminal justice reform movement was possible because crime had been driven to historic lows, in my view, in large part by the policy successes of the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, it's been driven to historic lows, and then Americans go, okay, we can tolerate being slightly nicer to criminals. Um, but once violent crime goes back up, people are like, hang on a minute, I'm not necessarily into this. Uh, so I think I think that certainly on the on the explicit level, as politics 
will become less popular and already becoming less popular. Um, you see this in you see this in mayoral races. You see this in congressional Democrats like had, uh, urgent need to disconnect themselves and defund the police that they do all the time. Uh, I think it is. I think they most of them recognize that it's unpopular. Well, did you stick around? Yeah, because it's like a long-standing tendency. But um, I don't think it'll last long, as long as crime is up. Um, Charles, on the note of uh, defunding the police, there's been kind of a crisis in police recruitment across the country. And uh, some people might say that, you know, the reason can simply be tracked to the defund the police movement and maybe some of the other flashpoints from the last two years or last few years, rather, not just the last two years, that have made it, you know, have made potential police officers less likely to pursue law enforcement as a career. Is that something that you're seeing or what other variables do you think are at play here? Yeah, I mean, so so I would say a couple of things. One is that there are, there are there's certainly large-scale demoralization in police forces. Every single cop that I talk to professionally tells me this is the worst that everyone has ever felt. We don't understand why we do this job. Everybody hates us. Our civilian leadership hates us. What the heck are we doing? You know, that's not a survey, but I think it shows up in surveys administered by groups like the Major City Chiefs Association uh, or the Police Executive Research Forum. They'll turn up the same stuff. That You know, cops are unhappy and cynical. They are afraid to do their jobs because they know that if something goes wrong, if they make... A split second call, the civilian authorities are going to throw them under the bus. Um, that, 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 that will happen. Uh, and they know that they're being hamstrung by lawmakers. Um, I wrote recently in City Journal about a decision by the Washington State Supreme Court, the effect of which is that uh, any person who is not white in the state of Washington has an assumption, has a reason, is considered to have a reasonable assumption that he or she is being detained. Uh, simply because they are not white, which can mean that any fruit of that stop can theoretically be thrown out in court. This is a huge issue. Uh, cities like Chicago, which have more or less banned foot pursuit, huge issue. So, you know, I think cops are demoralized. It's a little hard to tell in the macro data how much police staffing has changed. I think my best read is that you get more retirements, particularly in big cities. You're getting fewer people coming in, and a lot of people are not necessarily leaving the profession altogether, but moving to suburbs or moving to places where, frankly, they will be appreciated more. But that's a problem because most of the crime is in big cities, and that's where police can have the most impact. Um, I would say, though, you know, it is important to understand that there's a longer-run crisis in policing. If you talk to a group like the Police Executive Research Forum, they'll say a whole host of factors have sort of been putting a crunch on policing for at least a decade People are attracted to other jobs. Uh, they need more highly skilled people. Uh, they have more of an expectation for a college degree. But if you have that, then why would you become a police officer? Um, many departments report that uh, that their that their that their sworn officer levels are shrinking. Um, you know, so, so so I think there's a long term staffing crisis. And what I understand this topic is like, look. Uh, one of the one of the most persuasive findings in criminology is that police are an effective way to control crime. There's lots of really good research on this. Like we didn't think it was true for a long time, and then we started in the '90s doing better research, and we found that it's totally true. Uh, and so declines in police employment should reliably result in increases in in crime. Um, and I think we're seeing that. I think that's a major contributor to the last several years of increased violence. One thing you noted in one of your first answers was that the that the U.S. is one of the only places, you know, 
con- compared to the rest of the developed world that has seen this increase in violent crime post-COVID. The retort that you'd hear, I think, from a lot of criminal justice reform advocates on the left, uh, and one that you just hear in general in their in their arguments against sort of more tough on crime policies is the root cause explanation, right? Which is that, well, that's because we don't have a generous sort of social democratic welfare system. We don't have health care, et cetera. And if we did, like the rest of you know Europe, for example, then you wouldn't see a an increase in violent crime like the one that we've seen. What do you make of that argument, both in the context specifically of the scenario we're talking about with our current increase in violent crime, but also just in general? Yeah. Um, so as, as regards to the most recent increase, you know, the, the like fundamental problem there is that they're, they're using, they're using difference in bases in, in difference in base rates to, they're using difference in levels to analyze uh, a change in levels within countries. What I mean by that is like, okay, uh, Europe has a, has a natively much lower crime rate for whatever set of reasons. Um, that doesn't tell me anything about why we saw a big increase in crime in the United States and not a big increase elsewhere. Um, like, like that doesn't, exp- the, the social systems remain constant uh, between 2019 and 2020. In fact, by basically every reasonable estimate, America had among the most generous COVID responses in the world. Um, we gave people lots and lots of money, personal savings increased. Many people actually were able to afford stuff for the first time. So from like a, you know, from a purely like, crime happens because people are poor perspective, we should have expected crime to go down in 2020. Um, people end up sort of relying on, again, these like very weird theories about, well, it was more stressful to people for COVID to happen in the United States, which I don't really have a lot of time for. Um, I just, I, I, I don't think that the average person who goes out, who, who is like on the margins of going out and shooting their like, you know, gang guy up the street is it became more likely to do that because like COVID, they were like stressed out by the COVID they were seeing on television. I think that's projection on the part of the people who make these analyses. Um, but yeah, I mean, so, so, you know, root causes, root causes are complicated. Um, one point I'd like to make here is that there's only sort of a, the, the relationship between poverty and crime is actually much more complicated and tenuous than people would like to believe it is sort of intuitively many people who are poor are also quite law abiding you see a higher rate of criminal offending but it's clearly not dispositive um we also know that there's so interestingly there's a relationship between the business cycle the you know the the waxing waning of the economy boom and bust uh and levels of property crime but there isn't really a relationship between the business cycle and levels of violent crime those two things seem to be disconnected um, that's over, you know, uh, I think it's since the 1930s. Um, so we, it's, sorry, it's, 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 it's also the case that, uh, crime again is highly concentrated. It's highly concentrated in place. It's highly concentrated in people. And so even within very poor neighborhoods, even within very poor communities, many people are not engaged in crime. And those who do engage in crime are usually tied up in some other, you know, are, are tied up in gang life or have some other set of pathologies that set them apart. Um, but you know, the other thing I like to say following James Q. Wilson, to whom I alluded earlier, is that like root causes thinking is often not the most useful form of thinking. Um, you know, my, a, a, a line I lift wholesale from Wilson is that like a root cause of crime is being really tall um, because being large and physically imposing makes it possible to like, uh, to, to get things out of other people and to assault other people and et cetera. Um, but as it turns out, nobody is like to reduce crime, we should cut people's legs off. Um, to reduce crime, we should like we should like force people to get shrimpier. Uh, no, that's like not an efficient policy lever. Uh, and so the question is always not what is the root cause of the thing. The question is what is the most effective way that we can reduce the thing, even if 
and I don't grant it. But even if I do grant the premise that poverty causes crime, that doesn't mean that poverty alleviation is the most efficient way to reduce crime uh, that has the most effective is, is, is most effective at reducing crime relative to lots of other interventions. Charles, you had a piece today in the Institute for Family Studies on pot and pathology. And I'm wondering if you could uh, speak a little bit about your findings and perhaps the impact of the decriminalization of marijuana or the legalization of marijuana and it, some of its social effects. Yeah. So that that work is based on uh, – that, that essay is based on – I feel like I should credit them, uh, sort of concerns raised by a number of folks in the academic drug policy world, Keith Humphreys at Stanford, John Calkins at Carnegie Mellon. They're both great. So what you observe, there's, there's this weird thing that you observe in the, in the survey data, and the survey data is pretty reliable here, uh, which is that going back to the 1990s, definitely going back to the early 2000s, there's no meaningful increase in, in marijuana, in rates of the number of marijuana users. So like, in, in 2002, about 40% of Americans had ever tried marijuana. Today, it's like 45%. Um, you look at high school users, it's like basically flat. Um, and that's weird. I, you know, maybe it's social desirability bias, but like if there's a decline in uh, – if, if there's a decline in the sanction of marijuana, you'd expect that to go the other direction. Um, so what I show with, based on based on in part Don's analysis is that – while the extent of marijuana usage, the number of people who use marijuana has not risen dramatically, the intensity of marijuana usage, the, the, which I measure as use frequency, the number of people who use uh, more than 10 days a month, um, I use a variety of indicators, has gone up pretty dramatically. Um, it's something like the number of users who use, I think John's estimate is uh, in the early 1990s, there were about 900,000 Americans who used marijuana I think on a weekly basis and more than weekly basis. Um, and today it's something like 9 million. Uh, I show that in 2002, in 2020, there were more than double the number of greater than 10 days a month users of marijuana as there were in 2002. Um, the same thing applies to the number of use days, which is like the total number of counted days of marijuana. use. So basically the population that's using marijuana is using much more intensively than they used to. By the way, the pot's also much more potent than it was 30 or 40 years ago. Um, this gives the lie to the claim that legalization will result in less potent drugs. This is just empirically not what happened. Um, and, you know, the the line that we were fed by advocates of legalization is that, like marijuana is, you know, marijuana is good for you. It's not addictive. There are harmful side effects. It can be medical. And the reality is like, look, many people, just like any drug, uh, many people can use marijuana safely. The sort of low quality estimate is that it's only one in five people who try heroin will become addicted to it. Oh, that's an unreliable estimate. Um, but it's also the case that uh, there is a subset of the marijuana using population, probably about 10% who become who become uh, dependent on it, uh, who continue to use even when it's problematic for their usage, who can develop long-term memory problems, depression, anxiety, marijuana-related hyperemesis, throwing up a lot. There are all sorts, and you know, I think, there are a there are all sorts of harms intrinsic to it that are discounted by advocates of legalization. I think, frankly, for profit motive reasons. Um, but then also more generally, you know, I think I think widespread use of a of a, a depressant, um, what Calkins again refers to as a performance reducing drug, is like not good for American society. Um, it's not good. Everybody knows somebody who's addicted to pot, very bluntly, particularly if you're like a college grad. You know the guy who's stoned every single hour of every single day, and his life is worse for it. Um, and, you know, I think 
at the very least, I'm willing to say that is a problem that is not discussed enough, that that contributes to a whole host of pathologies characteristic of young adulthood in the 21st century. Perhaps it is an argument against legalization. There, you know, that's that's a separate conversation. Um, but I think it is certainly a problem that we don't discuss often enough. I think that gets back to the one of the things that we were discussing at the, at the beginning of the episode, which is there is this weird intersection between the libertarian right and the sort of liberationist left on issues like weed, but not exclusively on, on marijuana, right? Which is on the left, it's this broader sort of academic opposition to using the state to discipline bodies, et cetera, right? Sort of post-structuralist word salad a lot of the time. On the right, it's just a general hostility to the use of government, even when, you know, someone like you or I would say that, that, that that's, a, that's a prudent and legitimate use of state power. It seems like that coalition has been enormously effective in recent years on a variety of fronts, not just criminal justice reform, but this wholesale push to, to de- decriminalize weed. There aren't really that many potent movements in American life, at least vocally, that are opposing the legalization of cannabis now. I, I think that's sort of disastrous, right? Because I, I tend to think that the early neoconservatives were right about a lot when it comes to, to public disorder. How does one who sort of subscribes to that older view make the case for it in the context of this coalition where it seems like the libertarians on the right and the sort of liberationists on the left are ascendant. Yeah. You know, I think, I think all the time about an essay by uh, the American conservative editor, Helen Andrews um, called bloodless moralism, I think it was the first things in which he makes the case basically that the sort of dominant moral paradigm of the 21st century is this sort of like utilitarian calculus where everything is, thought about in terms of costs and benefits. And the coalition to which you're referring has been extraordinarily successful at minimizing the harms of drug use or minimizing the harms of all sorts of alcohol use, uh, tobacco use, all sorts of like self-harmful behaviors um, and emphasizing the benefits. The there are certain medical applications in marijuana. They are much larger than the medical applications for which marijuana is certified in many states, um, like for which there's actual evidence. Uh, that's just back to legalization. Um, no, but you know, I think I think that on the one hand, groups like Smart Approaches to Marijuana, Kevin Savitz Org, um, some of the sort of public health skeptics in marijuana push back successfully when they point to the health harms of marijuana usage. When they point to uh, the health harms of other substances. Um, when they sort of say, "Look, you can say we're being nanny states all we want, but actually, this is doing real harm." But you know, I really don't think you can win that fight without reorienting sort of what you count as a harm or what value language you're talking in. You know, the the reality talking more broadly about prohibition. Um, if I, you know, if I talk to a harm reductionist, the the sort of harm reduction is this idea of like we should we in, in its in its weak form, it's this idea of like we should do what we can to minimize the harms of drug use. And the strong form, this is like um, needle exchanges. And the strong form, it's like actually it is possible to use drugs safely. Um, and all of the harm that is caused by drug use is, is incidental to it. And if we sort of if if we create safe supply and if we uh, make sure that people get access to all the treatment they want. And oh, by the way, if we like get rid of the causes of poverty, if we get rid of racism, then everyone can use drugs freely. And that's what we're supposed to do. That, and that, you know, that when, I, when I talk to people with that sort of strong form view, um, I think the only way that you can respond to that is to say, look, what you are arguing is that addiction is not per se bad. 
that addiction is not per se harmful um, and that the state has no role in regulating addiction. Uh, and I think that we have lost the language for talking about a that addiction is per se bad, that there's sort of harm that compulsive self-harmful behavior is bad, is something that should be uh, worked against. And B, that the state has a legitimate role in managing it. You know, what I, what I like to say is uh, there are, you know, I am a conservative. I think that government is a threat to human liberty, but there are things other than government which are a threat to freedom. Um, and one of them is the scourge of addiction. Uh, it is it is harder to have a Republican people. It's harder to have people competent self-governance if like, you know, some subset of them are stoned out of their minds 24-7. It's really hard for them to govern themselves if they're addicted to opioids. It's honestly pretty hard for them to govern, to govern themselves if they're drunk all the time. Uh, so, you know, I think I think the root of an American approach to that sort of skepticism of substance use, that hostility to substance use involves invoking those values and like getting people on board with those values. I think those are intuitive. Most Americans do not favor heroin legalization. They're sort of, eh, whatever, on marijuana, but you can like swing them in other directions. Most Americans are, uh, they, they, they don't want sort of what the most radical want. And I think that that is important and you can sort of win them on those values if you, if you start from them. Charles, uh, great interview. We're about out of time for today. Uh, so thanks so much for joining us. People are interested in seeing more of their, of, more of your work. Where can they find you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, they can always find me on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Um, my work is often in the Manhattan Sioux City Journal, city-journal.org. And I, I, I would be remiss if I did not plug my own podcast, which I run with the Washington Free Beacon's Aaron Sibarium. It's called Institutionalized. Uh, you can find it on every major podcast platform, I think. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Conservative Conversations with ISI. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to head over to isi.org slash resources to see all that we offer our members, including the Intercollegiate Review, Select Modern Age Articles, ISI Books, and of course, this podcast. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate and review, and we will see you next time on Conservative Conversations with ISI. Bye.